You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator David Story. It is Saturday, December 12th, 2020, and we're broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, December 13th, 2020 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama. Today, we are talking to Taylor Barnes, a freelance journalist, about some writing she's done about Huntsville recently. We'll be talking to a member of the Mine Workers Union about a fund they have for unemployed folks that y'all may be interested in donating to. We'll be taking calls and more on today's Valley Labor Report. So thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, We appreciate your time. If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A-L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist. That's spelled R-A-D-I-C-L, Unionist. And if you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we clip segments and release them throughout the week, so you can just get get what you want. Just, just take what you want from the show. Uh, real easy. We also upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So, to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. Also, we have a website now, thevalleylaborreport.org. That's got all of our uh, shows, our podcasts, information about the show. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll probably be up- uploading some... Uh, might be uploading some articles and stuff like that as well. And finally, if you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. All right. So, folks, uh, we're talking to Taylor Barnes today. Taylor Barnes is a freelance journalist who has writing in basically any news outlet that you can think of. She's based out of Atlanta, and she's very busy. So, Taylor, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I would, I'd say Taylor is a friend of the show. Uh, uh, we've, uh, I, I've known Taylor. We've known Taylor now for. Oh, a little over a year, I guess. And the Bolivia episode would not have 
happened without her. Like, I, I don't know anybody outside of Alabama, basically, much less outside of the country. And, uh, and Taylor uh, has, has lots of contacts internationally. She's written, written about all sorts of places. So when, when I got the idea to, uh, to, to do the Bolivia episode, she was the first and the only person that I could think of that would know people in Bolivia. So, uh, you know, I appreciate your help there. Wouldn't have happened without you. Um, and so Taylor is an Atlanta-based journalist. She's written about topics as disparate as like Guantanamo, Brazil, Uruguay, all sorts of stuff. But a couple of days ago, she came out with yet another piece about Huntsville. How many, how many pieces have you written about Huntsville now, Taylor? Over this year, I've done three, you know, three sort of in-depth pieces about Huntsville. So what made you want to write so much about Huntsville, Alabama, being, you know, as you are an Atlanta journalist who, who is generally kind of focused on international human rights stuff, um, as, as well as, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, whistleblowers in the defense industry, stuff like that. What made you want, what, what made you want to write about Huntsville? You know, it's sort of a funny story. Um, like you just mentioned, I'm definitely very interested in human rights issues and the defense industry and conflict and war. Um, and so probably maybe a year or two ago, I was having a conversation with an activist here in Georgia, a Veterans for Peace activist. And he was just telling me about the different kinds of activism he did around the South. And then he said, oh, yeah. And then one time I did a protest at the Pentagon of the South. And I said, wait, hold up. What is the Pentagon of the South? <laughs> and then he explained to me Huntsville and, you know, how important it is for defense spending. And so I did what a journalist would do. And I went to the website usaspending.gov, which is a, t- a tool that, you know, journalists and any citizen can use as sort of a user-friendly way to look at government spending. And I ran a spending profile of Huntsville. And I said, holy cow, he wasn't kidding. And so that was sort of my, uh, yeah, the original reason I wanted to go to Huntsville. And as you guys probably know really well, you know, local journalism is really struggling and journalism done on the ground is really struggling. You know, you're not going to see that many reporters coming to Huntsville. Thankfully, I mean, you guys do have local media and I'm, you know, I'm glad it exists. And then, you know, I learn a lot from it, but it's also a place that, you know, that prominent that gets, you know, that much kind of defense spending, I think needs to have even more attention. So that was my goal. Okay, that that's that that's I, I didn't I didn't realize that, that that's what uh, that's what brought you here and and so you know I definitely agree this being the Pentagon of the South you know it would be it, it would be really good if I if if our neighbors so to speak knew more about uh, you know what was happening and and the broader political implications of of what goes on here so you mentioned that you um you know you you kind of ran across us uh, uh ran across Huntsville because of a peace activist in Georgia and that kind of that's a good segue into your most recent piece it came out in uh Scalawag magazine um about a and you know anybody who lives in Huntsville knows about the Peace Corner. Uh, I you know I, uh, it, it, it's been going on for forever. It feels like and and so it's it's something that's very familiar to Huntsville residents. And and you you wrote about it. So you know tell us you know what what did you you know what what was in your article? Yeah, I loved coming across the Peace Corner. 
And, you know, it's something that's been going on for almost two decades. It dates back to the Iraq War era. And, you know, some of the same people are still doing it. It's a ritual that they're doing every single week. Um, one question I even had, I asked uh, around, you know, does anyone else know of a, you know, a activism that has gone on for this long, like almost 20 years? Uh, and it really seems like it's, you know, kind of a record almost nationally. Um, so, yeah, I reached out to the people involved in it and I wanted to join them and wanted to, you know, see what they were doing. And I found out that, you know, not only do they run this peace corner, you know, with messages like bring our war money home, tax the rich, you know, veterans for peace. Not only do they do that, but they themselves are all people, not all, many of them, though, have, you know, a connection to the defense industry. This is a personal topic to them, you know. Um, one woman who takes part in the peace corner is a math tutor, and she grew up uh, both in Saudi Arabia and in North Dakota because her stepdad was digging missile silos during the Cold War. You know, I mean, that's just not an experience most Americans have and most Americans think about, I think, you know, even though it's being done in all of our names. Um, another guy who participates in the Peace Corner is a Vietnam veteran and was an engineer for Raytheon, you know, particularly in the 80s, which I think was a really boom time uh, in Huntsville. Um, so, yeah, it was really nice to talk with them and see the protests and how they do this and, you know, a way where they're talking about these really big, important issues, uh, but they're doing it in a really friendly way, a sort of neighborly way. You know, they're waving at people, you know, they're giving them thumbs up. And you would think that, I mean, oh, if Huntsville is, you know, this defense town, would people be, you know, hostile and angry? And it's the opposite. They're throwing them peace signs out the window. They're throwing them thumbs up. It's, you know, a very friendly exchange. And like you guys said, everyone knows it. It's not new. They've been seeing it, you know, week after week for years now. So it was really cool to see. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that needs to be pointed out is the fact that, you know, when we talk about the defense industry and when we talk about uh, bringing our, our troops home and things like that, you know, a lot of times, you know, some of the people on the right get the feeling that we're trying to, you know, disassemble or dismantle the defense industry. And that's, you know, there's a big difference between uh, there's a big difference between defense industry and offense industry mm-hmm. and uh, imperialism, U.S. imperialism across the globe and bringing troops home from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Syria, from from Africa, from everywhere that we're uh, waging offensives and, and, and still continue the defense industry. It's not like we're, we're, you know, we're going to completely do away with the defense industry. It's the fact that we don't need to have a presence in all of these countries, and especially, you know, with the drone strikes and things like that, the continuous, continuous mm-hmm. drone strikes everywhere across the world. Yeah. I think you're hitting the nail on the head, and I, you know, I think that's the direction that so many people want to go in. And I also think there's a lot of appetite to see the defense industry, you know, mean something more. You know, we're having, what, almost 3,000 Americans die per day right now of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extraordinary number. You know, we have Americans already suffering from climate change, um, you know, from, uh, from wildfires, from rising sea levels. And I think there's a lot of things to defend ourselves against that, you know, are about people's well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, no, no kidding. Talk about, you know, uh, misplaced priorities. I think that that if ever there, there was a case of misplaced priorities, it would be, you know, defense industry money 
so-called defense industry money going to perpetuate these forever wars uh, in the Middle East where, you know, yeah. I, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the kind of clearest things is like, well, how did my freedoms get over there? Like, you know, uh, it, it, it's something that I think that, you know, David, you mentioned folks, on, uh, some folks on the right. I, I think that even, it's something that even a lot of folks on the right understand that yeah, it doesn't yeah. make sense. I think that the the people that, that pretend not to understand are the pr- people that directly profit from it, like the people at Raytheon. And, and you know, speaking of Raytheon, uh, we're, it looks like Biden is going to try to appoint a former board member from Raytheon who is still not been out of the military long enough to be uh, legally allowed to be the defense secretary. He's going to have to get a waiver. And, you know, just because he's from Alabama, I've seen some folks from Alabama being like, oh, this is a step in the right direction and whatever, whatever. But like, no, you know, <laughs> we, we shouldn't be having people on the board of Raytheon running the Department of Defense. We're going to be talking some more with Taylor Barnes, a freelance journalist about uh, Huntsville, the defense industry, stuff like that on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Lonely dead stuck bleeding pig. Lonely dead shot shoes today. Alright folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. I'm here with my co-host David Story. On the line, we have Taylor Barnes. Taylor Barnes is an Atlanta-based freelance journalist who has writing everywhere in the world that you can imagine. Um, the Including in- one of our favorite, or I know at least my favorite periodical, In These Times. In These Times, The Intercept. I love In These Times. Good stuff, good stuff. I'd say that my my favorite is probably Current Affairs. Uh, I really like Current Affairs. I recommend it. But m- because I'm a union member, my subscription to In These Times is free, so I don't know, maybe I should... Uh, Maybe I should rethink that. Uh, <laughs> but but we've been uh, we've been talking to Taylor Barnes. She has written three in-depth pieces about Huntsville recently. And we were talking to her about the Peace Corner and how surprisingly it's received kind of a um, you know a warm reception in Huntsville. Of course, there are people that are kind of vitriolic and, and such, and, and you expect that no matter what no matter what you're you're saying. If you interact with the public, you you expect some amount of vitriol. That's to be expected. But uh, you know, I think that there's a broad bipartisan consensus among working people, whether they vote for Republicans or Democrats in November. Among voters, among working people, I think the broad consensus is that our defense budget is bloated. We spend too much time and resources overseas, uh, but our jobs, David and I both work in the defense industry. So does everybody. I I would say probably every single person in Huntsville has a connection to the defense industry, at least. If they don't work in the defense industry themselves, their dad does, or their brother does, or their son or daughter does. They, oh, they're supporting people in the. I mean, they're servicing right. people in this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. So, so you know, the, the we we've got the largest per capita um, engineer, the, the the most 
engineers per capita in the country, yep. uh, the second most STEM workers per uh, per capita in the country. You know, this is a very the the defense sector is all kinds of, you know. it's all kind, it's got roots deep in the Huntsville economy. And that's by design. And in fact, um, Taylor, you didn't mention this in your piece, but I I, I wonder if you know the specific stats on it. Uh, There is, there are defense jobs uh, with the top, you know, the, the top defense contractors have lots of jobs in almost every congressional district by design in republic in Republican districts and Democratic districts so that when you're voting on the defense budget, when you're voting on forever wars, basically you're voting for jobs for your district. And what I found really interesting and really useful about your piece in Southerly is you talked about the potential for a real, uh, and you, you know, you, you, you talk about real numbers and real statistics in, in, in your piece about how, how we would go from a defense yeah. industry to something that is more domestically focused, something that actually helps working people uh, instead of killing working people overseas. So c- talk to us about that. What would that look like? Tell us some of those numbers, because I found that really interesting and informative. No, I'm so glad you guys liked the article and so glad that it was informative. And, you know, the first thing I kind of wanted to say is, you know, when you guys were describing how, you know, Huntsville is a place where a lot of people will have a connection to the defense industry, either they work in it, they've got a relative who works in it. I most certainly, and I think it's really important to not blame workers for needing to take a job. I mean, I am in journalism. I definitely know what it's like to be in an industry that is hemorrhaging jobs, jobs getting worse, pay getting worse, job security getting worse. So, you know, the last thing I would ever do is blame somebody for taking, you know, a good job, especially one that, you know, is coming from the federal government that, you know, has that security. I just also think that we, you know, as citizens should have more say and more voice in how that money gets spent. Um, one funny story about, you know, Huntsville and the economy, I spoke for, um, for that motherly piece, I spoke with one of your mayoral candidates and I said, okay, you know, when you talk about Huntsville to your friends who don't live there, uh, how do you describe it? He said, oh, Huntsville is a place that, you know, you go out to drink and you meet some people in the bar and every other person you meet has a security clearance. Mm, yes. And I thought that was really funny and sort of, uh, hit the nail on the head about what kind of a place it is. Um, but yeah, you know. Defense spending does create jobs, and that's, you know, it's no joke. It's nothing to look down on. And there's just other ways to create jobs as well, and I think we should, you know, have the permission to be a little bit more imaginative. And there's some great research from an academic center at Brown University called the Cost of War Project. And amongst other things, they look at job creation for the defense industry, and they say that's actually one of the worst ways to create jobs from an economic standpoint. Uh, one reason is that it's capital intensive. So that means less money goes straight to salaries. You know, something like education, a lot more money is going straight to salaries. Um, another reason is that the defense industry does a lot of outsourcing. And so that means it's not going straight to American jobs. And so some of the ways that, you know, uh, economists propose spending uh, that would make more jobs uh, for, you know, a million dollars of investment is on clean energy, is on infrastructure, on education on care, on the care economy, you know, elder care, child care, all of these things would create more jobs and, you know, ones that are, you know, very stable, something like, you know, renewable energy. That's something that Americans need every single day. That's not, you know, 
one war now that's here today and, you know, uh, you know, ends in a decade. Renewable energy is something we're going to rely on for our whole lives. So I think it's just an important conversation to start having. And that's something that you, in one of your articles uh, a month, six weeks ago, pointed out was you, and, and really you sent it to us and it, and it really caught my eye and was is in depth. And I, I try not to use the term Green New Deal because, you know, these terminologies that uh, several of the Democratic candidates are using, they, they do such a terrible job of messaging on them, you know, and everybody on the right and a lot of people in the, in the you know, a lot of the moderates uh, don't understand uh, exactly, you know, it's automatically termed socialism and, you know, this and that and the other. And the fact of the matter is the defense industry is the biggest socialist, uh, you know, industry in, in the world. But you've done a great job in your article of interviewing, and I can't remember his name, I apologize. But, Yost. Uh, yeah, Yost. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant uh, engineer and a brilliant design uh, and about what that transition could look like and and one of the biggest things that i see uh that's that you can bridge that gap of right left and moderates is the fact of energy independence and moving away from Mm -hmm. moving away from corporate uh conglomerate energy uh sources like alabama power and things like that oh man a couple of our show break so we'll 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 pick that up on the other side of the break my apologies we're going to let Taylor answer that on the other side of the break. If you've got a question for Taylor, give us a call. 1-866-494-9866 is the number. We will be right back. This is the Valley Labor Report. The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host, David Story. We are talking to freelance journalist Taylor Barnes about her pieces about Huntsville, Alabama, and the defense industry here. If you've got a question for her, you can give us a call, 1-866-494-9866, or you can tweet us or Facebook us. You can tweet us at Labor Reporters. You can go to our Facebook page at The Valley Labor Report. Let uh, let us know your question that way if you don't want to call us. Where we left off, we, we were talking about how, David was talking about how this, the, the, the way that she wrote her article, and I really recommend checking it out. It's in Southerly Magazine. Uh, the title of the article is uh, From Arms to Renewables, How Workers in This Southern Military Industrial Hub Are Converting the Economy. He was talking about how Robert Yost. Uh, Robert Yost is the uh, owner of American Wind, which is a uh, uh, which is a, you know a wind turbine company local to Huntsville, doing some really uh, really cool work. And how you know we can not only be selling the Green New Deal as something that is that is good and just and all of those things, but it's something that that would help us help the United States be more energy independent. It would be good for our national security interests. And uh, and and you know like I was saying earlier, it would create jobs and the numbers that that you quoted uh taylor in your piece were really interesting to me what you 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 said that uh the uh uh 
that study that you mentioned said that for every million dollars invested by the government, the defense industry creates 6.9 jobs. The same amount invested by the government in clean energy creates 9.8 jobs. I mean, that's, that's pretty significant. Substantial. And, if, and if we want to talk about being fiscally conservative, we want to talk about being energy independent, we want to talk about uh, uh, doing good by our uh, constituents, by, by the voters, by the working people in the United States, it's, it's a good investment. Yeah, most, most definitely. Um, and you know what, even when I, when you, when I put numbers like that in the piece, you know, numbers speak to me and I, you know, I like seeing that, but you know, look at that. That's imagine it's about two more jobs, you know, per million dollars. That's families that are supported, you know, that's breadwinners that are, you know, supporting people who'd otherwise be struggling. Um, yeah. And another thing I want to say, sort of comparing, uh, the two industries, not only does energy and renewable energy infrastructure, you know, rely on the same labor pool, engineers, you know, mechanics, electricians, uh, as the defense industry. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about the problem of needing to, you know, transition the United States to renewable energy, we're talking about budget figures that are kind of similar to what we spend on defense, you know? So just this week, uh, Congress is passing a defense bill, which is for $740 billion. Like it's, you know, it's the kind of thing when I type it, I have to be like, wait, did I get enough zeros in? It's just, right. it's extraordinary. Um, and if you think back during the campaign, when Biden talked about uh, his climate plan, he claimed he would spend $2 trillion over four years. So that's about, you know, $500 billion per year. So actually defense still sort of takes the cake, but we're talking about things that require similar levels of investment. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's both a spending trade-off and it's a priorities trade-off. You know, what do, what do we need on a day-to-day -day basis? And I think a lot of Americans would say that they want to live in a cleaner environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, not just that. I mean, it, it, I, I go back to the same thing because, you know, just because you are trimming down some of the spending on defense doesn't mean that you're going to lose jobs. That doesn't mean that, you know, all, all these people are going to go without work. There's no reason whatsoever you can't transition those same workers and those same engineers into something that benefits the, the U.S. population as a whole, as opposed to just uh, these large defense corporations, you know. Uh, and and Yost was a perfect example. Mm -hmm. and, and break that cycle and provide the energy independence. And, uh, you know, everybody around here remembers the tornadoes that came through uh, mm -hmm. and wiped out the energy grid for, at my house, for I, th I think it was 10 days we were without electricity. Mm -hmm. And had we been on a uh, independent solar style or what Yost is doing with the wind uh, turbines, then everybody would have still had electricity. And we would be generating it ourselves, and it would be clean. I mean, there's a there's a win win. There's no losses right. in this in this system. Yeah, tell tell us more about American Wind and Robert Yost. I I, I know about him, but but our audience doesn't. Uh, tell tell us about that. That I I think that's a fantastic fantastic company. He's a good guy. Uh, just, just tell us a little bit of more more about your conversations with him. Yeah, I absolutely loved uh, meeting Yost. He is an engineer and the founder of American Wind in Huntsville. Um, and just a reminder, you know, Huntsville is full of talent and full of smart people. It's got the Chamber of Commerce says it has the highest concentration of engineers in the country. And um, so it's not surprising that people are coming up with great solutions. 
And he worked across several industries, including the defense industry. He worked on fighter jets. He worked on cruise missiles. And when he, after the tornadoes uh, in 2011, uh, when his power was out, he said that um, his wife looked at a sort of pedestal fan, like the kind of fan you use to keep you cool with its blades turning in the wind. And she says, why can't you get power out of that? Um, and sort of launched him on a new career path. And he redesigned a wind turbine that looks less like an airplane propeller and more like a jet engine. So he's really transitioning, you know, his understanding of, you know, a technology that he, you know, became familiar with in the defense industry and transitioned it to renewable energy. And it's so cool. It's, you know, wind turbines, you know, that we, you know, know and see are gigantic things are in wind farms. He's made ones that's like the size of a shoebox. And, you know, it's not far away from your house. It can go right next to your house. It can go, uh, you know, right next to a restaurant. So I loved hearing his story. And talking again about the point David was making about jobs, uh, he and his son have told me that, um, you know, they have a family member who, you know, is a blue collar worker and uh, comes in and out of town and they trained him on the shop, how to make these wind turbines, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not some enormous obstacle. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of job creation to be talking about uh, in the transition to renewable energy and building back our infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I was amazed. I was because I've been doing research ever since the tornadoes on how my family can remove themselves from the grid, go to clean energy, and and I, when I read your article, I was just floored mm. because that's not out there anywhere. Mm-hmm. You were the you are the only person that's reporting on that, uh, and everything that I'd read on wind was just it was unattainable in mm-hmm. in our area because we didn't but. After reading your article, I was floored. And I didn't see this in your article, but I've talked to Yost. You know, like I, uh, I, I know of him. I've had conversations with him. He said that those shoebox-sized turbines generate as much electricity as a six-foot-tall wind turbine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. So cool. Another thing I'd like to, you know, point out that was also in the article talking about someone who, you know, transitions in a way from, uh, you know, defense to a different kind of economy is um, a young woman who was an engineering student at University of Alabama in Huntsville. Mm -hmm. And she grew up surrounded by the defense industry. She's from Melbourne, Florida, the quote unquote space coast. And she said she would see, you know, job booms, job losses, you know, it really depends on, you know, the what the government's buying, what the military's buying. Um, And she just imagined that renewable energy would be a more stable industry for American workers, because this is something that Americans need every single day. And she's on fire about solar power and solar panels. And a big issue she's trying to resolve is how to recycle solar panels, because nowadays they last 15 to 30 years and then they go to the landfill. And she's imagining and working on a solar recycling program that she thinks will just create enormous employment because it'll take a specialized workforce to actually recycle all the valuable parts in these solar panels and get them back to use again. So I think there's just so much possibility that we can be investing in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's incredibly smart. I had um, I had multiple classes with her in college and she was always like top of the class, the most interested in what was going on. So, you know, if anybody can do it, uh, I would I'd say that she probably can. So, I, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what she's able to do and and seeing uh, uh, seeing Yost's company succeed. I mean, there's just so much potential uh, here in Huntsville and across the country uh, for this kind of transition um you know and i i think that i don't i think that people really discount the um 
action ability and, and, and practicality of, of a lot of this. Because it, as you point out in your article, it, it's not this thing that is that that's unreasonable. It, it's very reasonable. Um, you know, so so as we're wrapping this up, uh, you know, Taylor, you're a freelance journalist. Can you tell us a little bit about you know uh, you know you mentioned that 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 jobs are kind of few and far between often for freelance journalists. It's an industry that's having a lot of issues. Uh, you know, what is it, what's it like kind of being in, in this place where you're so, uh, you know, being a freelance journalist, that, that seems pretty precarious to me. Yeah, it's definitely precarious. And I have been a freelance journalist for more than 10 years now. So it's been a lot of ins and outs. Uh, talk about like boom and bust times, you know, there's times when, uh, you know, things are going well. And then there's times when there's dry periods for, you know, a long time. Um, and so really what's happening is that, you know, major news outlets have cut jobs in a, you know, a huge way. Um, local news is dying and, you know, just like I said, hemorrhaging jobs. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the growth of quote unquote news deserts across the country, which are, you know, counties, cities, and towns that have no news source and have no, you know, yeah, nothing to track the day's events. Um, and, you know, there is of course a rise in citizen media and, you know, social media and being able to produce our own news. But I don't think, you know, I have to tell you guys that like, there's, you know, between like an unpaid reporter and a paid reporter, you know, the level of rigor and the level of, you know, professionalism you can get, of course, is going to be, you know, better. You need to invest in this. If you want quality news, it needs an investment. Um, so a lot of people like me, you know, I basically entered the job market uh, post-2008. So, you know, the jobs weren't there and, you know, the news jobs weren't there. So we've sort of made it on our own as a freelancer, which means that we are, you know, selling our articles on a case-by-case basis. And that can vary enormously. You know, I know of some local reporters uh, who get paid something like, you know, 30 to $50 per article uh, when they're covering, you know, uh, city council meetings versus, you know, the really high-end stuff, writing for big national magazines. And, of course, can get, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars per article. But right. there's a lot of inequality there. Right. We're going to talk some more about that uh, on the other side of the break. Folks, stay tuned. You're listening to The Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. We are talking to Atlanta-based freelance journalist Taylor Barnes. Uh, we are talking to her about the state of uh, journalism in America, uh, and you know, I, I think that, that that a lot of people, you know, realize that it, it's tough to, to be a journalist, especially to be a freelance journalist. And you know, you mentioned the inequality, and you mentioned that you're not going to get as good as as quality of work 
if it's unpaid. You know, you mentioned that that a lot of people are kind of doing this on the side, like they've got a day job and then, you know, every other afternoon, maybe they'll go to a city council meeting and write up about it. Or maybe every other afternoon, they'll like write a Facebook post or a blog post or something. You know, I, I do things like that. Of course, this is, you know, this is a side, this is a side gig for David and I. We don't even, you know, we no, don't even get no paid gig. for it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we don't even get paid for it. So of course, you know, like if this was our job, right? It would be a lot better, and the, and the same goes for any other uh, in any other kind of any other kind of media. There are a lot of people that kind of do these do like passion projects, but they you know that's not their job. So it, it it's just simply not going to be as good. Yeah, most certainly. And you know what? Um, sort of change topics for a second. There is an amazing story that happened here recently in Georgia. Uh, during, as you probably saw, our extremely nail-biting uh, vote counting after yeah. the election. There's a county south of Atlanta called Clayton County that um, uh, ended up being where votes were counted, where votes finally turned in Biden's favor. So everybody was watching this county. Were there journalists in it? Hardly. Uh, and there was one woman who started her own journalism shop, a little just a nonprofit. She called it Clayton Crescent. She was there with the vote counters, watching the tally come in. Um, and before she became famous for, you know, everybody watching her Twitter account, everybody watching, you know, this vote counting going on, she had done a GoFundMe over the summer trying to get, you know, money for this outlet. And she had trouble raising $2,000. You know, that's, yeah, I mean, it's basic. Yeah, she couldn't even raise $2,000 for this outlet. Um, and she's there on the ground as things were happening, like, you know, these uh, poll observers coming in and, you know, they threatening that something illegal was happening. That's watchdog journalism is showing up. Yep. Um, so, yeah, major inequality in our industry and sort of a major uh, we have priority issues about what kind of news we prioritize and what kind of news we don't prioritize and invest in. Yeah, well, and, and, and it's important for everybody to realize, you know, we, we I talked about in these times a while ago, Jacob talked about current affairs. Mm-hmm. I think both one of our other uh other uh, other one of our top uh reporters or journalists is kim kelly over at team Mm -hmm. vogue doing amazing work the Uh, intercept is good the intercept but it's important for people to realize that uh without without people like you without people Mm -hmm. like kim Mm -hmm. on the ground reporting these issues uh, and eventually it gets to the point where nobody hears any information and you know what is the saying? Democracy dies in, in dark. Right. So I mean, it's important for us to give back to these journalists and pay them their their just doing their worth, at, such as yourself, and sub- subscribe to these. Uh, even if it's not a periodical, even if it's an online, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. pay a few dollars, support the work that's going on in the community. Yeah. You know, Taylor, what, you know, uh, David and I both, we, we subscribed to, uh, a number of periodicals ourselves, ourselves. We try to support, you know, I, I mentioned that, uh, because I'm a union member, I get my, my subscription to end these times for free actually, but I do pay for my current affairs subscription. Uh, I believe there's a couple of others. And, and once my free, uh, one year subscription for in these times is over, I will be, I'll be paying for that. Um, you know, but, but, uh, you know, is that the solution? As a journalist yourself, you know what? What would you kind of like to see happen to make the industry better? Like, if if you were given like a magic wand, like what would you do? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, first I also wanted to quickly add to some of the outlets you were mentioning. 
we also have some really good outlets here on the ground in the South uh, that are yeah. doing good work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Some nonprofit outlets. The one I just wrote for, Scalawag, they cover activism, they cover social justice movements. Um, Southerly Magazine, also the one I've written for, which covers environmental issues across the South. Um, so important. There's another really nice outlet called Facing South um, yep. that has done a lot of labor issues. They did a lot around, you know, poultry workers and um, meatpacking workers during COVID. That's so, one that I'm actually talking. I don't know if you know Olivia, but I'm talking with Olivia now trying to get her uh, on the show to, to talk about because they've been covering mm-hmm. a lot of uh, workers' rights issues in the South and especially in poultry plants where the the the, the conditions are horrendous, but you're right. Facing South is another, there's a, so many great places out there. The Baffler is another one that I read descent. I mean, and you show up in most of them as well. So. <laughs> yeah, <you're- laughs> you know, you asked sort of what I would do if I could wave a magic wand. And I think there's things we can correct as an industry. And then there's things where we, you know, need readers to help too, you know, so we have our own internal problems. You know, we, overpay you know columnists who sit on their desks in big cities and you know write provocative you know mm-hmm. controversial columns about you know this the country current affairs etc and then underpay reporters who are on the ground actually reporting you know real original news um we have a really big concentration of uh, of journalists in media hubs so a lot of journalists in washington a lot of journalists in new york i don't know maybe you guys might have seen on social media some of the images of uh you know, the Trump impeachment, or you'll see, you know, a crowd literally of 100 journalists, like a scrum, you know, yeah. recording it behind. And of course, it's an extremely important event, but we just need, I really believe strongly that we need media and national media to be all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are some of the things we can do. And also, I mean, you know, it's tough. I mean, I know readers are being asked for money to go in a lot of different directions, but at the end of the day, you know, that's part of getting quality news. You get what you pay for. You know, people will love to gripe about cable news and how it's, you know, filled with ads or, you know, how they open up their local newspaper online nowadays and you get a million ads popping up on you. But like, you know, that's unfortunately going to be the reality until we find a better way to pay for it. Or, you know, like what when I think a couple of weeks ago when you originally emailed us your article, you know, I pointed out that thank God somebody is writing something besides this this damn political election i'm I'm so Mm -hmm. sick and tired of reading about you know but like you said that's that's what's paying right now but Mm -hmm. and that's unfortunate there there's so much more work to be done by average everyday americans than worrying about the presidential election and that may sound uh dismissive but i Mm -hmm. I think it's the truth there Mm -hmm. you know you're writing about things that matter to people that's actually going to make a difference in people's lives as opposed to who, who's getting elected this year. You know what? I 100% agree with that. And uh, I, another big problem I think we have in media is sort of over-nationalization. You know, we talk yes. a lot about the big national yeah. stuff, and then we have these news deserts where we actually live. Uh, I have family members, for example, who read the New York Times because it's a great paper, you know? Uh, it's a great paper. You get the news. You do a crossword puzzle. You read an essay. It's nice. And then literally don't know the name of the mayor in their town, you yeah. know? And then they can talk all yeah. along about Bill Blasio because, you know, they're reading the New York Times and it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's a great paper. Uh, but there's just a major gap in, you know, what we're reading, what we're caring about. But, you know, and it's it goes both ways, you know? We need to look for those sources, but we also need to invest in them. Yeah, that's right. That, I mean, that's that's 
a powerful statement that you just said mm-hmm. because most of the people in our state have no clue who their state representative are. Yeah, I mean, you seriously, know. being able to talk, be, living in the South and being able to talk about, have an opinion on Bill de Blasio and not who, knowing yeah. who your, who, who your state Cuomo. rep. Or Andrew Cuomo. not knowing your state rep or your mayor. I mean, it's, a, it's an epidemic, really. You know, uh, it, it's really, really And that's it, why they really get bad. away with so much mm-hmm. that they get away mm-hmm. with here. Yeah. And in yeah. every other state. Yeah, and you know, I'll mention just kind of a kind of a historical um, tie-in to what you're saying. You know, people talk about kind of the glory days of the news when everybody turned into uh, you know NBC and could agree that this was that 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 was what was happening. You know, there's a there's a bit of kind of looking looking at the past with rose-colored lenses and and stuff like that, and being able to read the New York Times and, and stuff. Well, uh, the period before that, when you had, you know, the muckrakers and, and stuff like that, my understanding of the history is that the, the muckraking, the yellow journalism, the, the kind of really <laughs> subpar stuff kind of went away once people started subscribing to newspapers and actually paying for it instead of having to be paid by advertisers and stuff. And so we have gone back to a more advertiser model and maybe going back to a, a more subscription-based model could help bring us back out of that, uh, out of this kind of state of journalism, state but of affairs that we've got now. Let's be honest. Most of the media that people are, are consuming nowadays is not news. What you're seeing on TV, what you're hearing on the radio are opinion pieces, Mm -hmm. and they're very uh, divisive opinion pieces because that's kind of got to the where we are as a society in general. You're not hearing news articles or reading much unless, you know, you're following some of of the works of yourself and others. So, you know, most of what we're seeing, even like at the Fox level, at CNN and MSNBC, it's absolute trash. Mm -hmm. It's absolute trash, 24-7 divisiveness. You know, on that same point, uh, the article of mine that you guys, you know, have mentioned here in Southerly Magazine, which covers environmental issues, it was funded by a group called the Solutions Journalism Network, which is saying, you know, you know, Americans are reading a lot about problems. They're reading a lot, you know, things that are very divisive. Uh, what can we write about that points to what we should be doing, you know? Right. Um, and this, I think that's why the article was just really well received. I had a lot of people giving me great feedback about it. I had people commenting saying, yeah, that's the transition I want to make. I want to go from arms to renewables. And yeah, I think there's a lot of appetite for that. Yeah. We're going to bring Taylor back on the other side of the break just to let us know where people can find her work. Uh, and then, then we'll uh, uh, be taking calls. one 9866 is the number. Stay tuned. WVNN. You got the principal Tyreek at it up. You got the fire at it up. You got the principal Tyreek at it up. You got the All right, folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host, David Story. On the line, we have Atlanta-based freelance journalist Taylor Barnes, friend of the show, fantastic writer and reporter, Uh, could not say enough good things about her. Um, We've talked about... We've talked about peace, we've talked about war, talked about transitioning from a defense-heavy economy to a 
clean energy economy. We've talked about the state of journalism. We've talked, I mean, just all, ran the gambit. If you missed part of the interview, go back, subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Valley Labor Report on YouTube, and you can watch the interview. Really good stuff. I've really enjoyed it. So, Taylor, uh, just to wrap up, where, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? I know you've got, you've got a place where we can find, you know, kind of everything that you've written. So, No, thank you guys so much for having me on. Uh, people can both follow me on Twitter. I'm at TK Barnes, so T-K-B-A-R-N-E-S. And I also have a website, same name, uh, www.taylorkbarnes.com. Uh, and the website, you know, I made it about 10 years ago when I began this career. So please don't judge me if it looks like it's a little dated. I'll update it one day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll link to your to your website and everything. And, and, and I think Jacob tagged you yesterday whenever he uh, – sent out a tweet but we'll we'll make sure that we link to your website in the in the description notes and things like that as well so you can check that out if you will check if you want to find her yep taylor thank you so much for talking to us i really appreciate it i i enjoyed the conversation thanks y'all all right have a good one uh so then uh, we were going to talk some about you know last week we had a big show it was kind of a big production on uh, Bolivia, uh, we had six different interviews. We talked to um, we talked to an author of three books on Bolivia. Uh, we talked to um, a, a bunch bunch of bunch of folks about it, and uh, you know. So I wanted to kind of talk about our thoughts. Uh, I wanted to give David, a, you know, neither of us have had a chance to kind of um, independently give our thoughts about those those interviews. And I think that there's, you know, I think that we've got a lot to say about it. So I, I thought that it would be a good good opportunity to uh, uh, to talk about this. But um, first, is that the is that the mine worker on the phone? It is Larry Spencer, brother Spencer on the phone. You ready to bring him in? Yeah, yeah, we can go ahead and bring him in before we talk about the Bolivia stuff. He is queued up. All right, Larry Spencer, thank you so much for calling in. Larry Spencer is a member of the United Mine Workers of America here in Alabama. Uh, they they've got a uh, they've got something that they're uh, that they're doing down down there in in uh, south of here in Alabama. So, Larry, can you tell us about it? Yeah, actually, I'm the I'm the vice president, uh, the international vice president of District 20, which covers Alabama. And uh, what's going on is we've got uh, 350 uh, coal miners that's been laid off at, at uh, Shoal Creek Mine, uh, which is up in Walker County, uh, Tuscaloosa, Walker, and Jefferson. It covers pretty much all of them, but we're uh we're we've been putting on some food drives for them uh the last uh couple of uh weeks to try to help them get through this uh, we have no idea when they're going to be able to get them back to work and you know this is hit at a real hard time so uh we was just wanting to let y'all know that we was doing this food drive and and that we can uh, try to, you know, do what we can to support these guys. So brother Larry, have y'all got a, uh, GoFundMe or PayPal or Venmo or anything like that where we can link to and spread the word about, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of people in, in our listening area, 
uh, especially the ones that's online, listen nationwide. Uh, they'll probably be willing to help, but they're not going to be able to, to get food. But uh, I'm sure y'all have somebody that would be more than willing to go out and purchase the food if we can get some donations to you. We, we do. We've, uh, we've been purchasing the food. Uh, we've partnered with uh, United Way of Central Alabama, and there's a account set up. It's uh, Community Partners of Alabama. And they can mail it to the United Way of Central Alabama, P.O. Box 320189, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, 35232. Attention, David Clark. David Clark. Okay. okay. Now give it, give us that give this, give us that address uh, one more time, and that's uh, and the it's the um, United Way of Central Alabama? Yes. Uh, again, the checks need to be made out to Community Partners of Alabama. And it needs to be mailed to United Way of Central Alabama, P.O. Box 320189, Birmingham, Alabama, three five two three two. Okay, and it, we uh, it's this, me and Jacob didn't have a lot of chance to talk about this, so I'm kind of running blind. But I'm asking questions that I'd normally ask if some of our members were laid off. Uh, is there anything that y'all are doing to help uh, the family with Christmas? You know, as far as uh, Christmas prep, because I mean, if if people are laid off. They're, they're relying on the, the, the minimum to get their bare substance. And, you know, we don't want the kids to suffer uh, through Christmas. Is there anything y'all are doing on that aspect of it or anything we can help you do on that aspect of it? Well, actually what happened was we was planning to do that, but we've had so much trouble trying to get the food and stuff up because mm. this happened so quick. Mm that we haven't been able to establish uh, a toy drive uh, because we've been trying to deal with this food. You know, um, usually when we have a problem, we can reach out to the food banks, but right now they're just covered up yeah. with this problem with time. coronavirus and stuff. So, Yep, I get it. And we got... Uh... We got 13 days till Christmas, unfortunately. So, how many how many members have y'all got? How many members is this affecting? 350. Jeez, hmm. jeez, and that's probably you can take that, multiply it times four, and figure that's how right. many actual, you know, roughly 1,200 family members is this suffering right now over this. That's right. Yeah, that that's well. Uh, you know, I hope hope we can get some folks mailing out some checks. And who is that um, CO? At the United Way of Central, Central Alabama? Uh, David Clark. Okay. David Clark. Okay, I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going to tweet that out. Have y'all got a Twitter account? No, we don't. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll, we're gonna, we'll do everything we can. Jacob and I and the show yep. will all share it, and we'll see if we can't get some other people sharing it. 
and see if we can get some money coming in to help these folks out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we, we appreciate you taking the time to call in the show. We're, uh, again, what's happened is that uh, some members of the United Mine Workers of America uh, down in Tuscaloosa County, about 350 of them have been laid off. If you want to help um, get some, uh, you know, help the union buy some food for them, you can send checks made payable to Community Partners of Alabama. That's who the check is going to be, be made out to, Community Partners of Alabama. Send the check, mail the check to United Way Central Alabama, CO David Clark. The uh, P.O. Box address is P.O. Box 320189, Birmingham, Alabama, 35232. Uh, Larry, thanks so much for calling in, and, and I hope we can hope we can get y'all uh, get y'all some support. Thank y'all so much. All right, thanks, brother. brother. Man, that's terrible. Yeah, that, that's tough. And you know the uh, with the unemployment uh, stimulus having run out. Um, a Everything's while back. coming to I an mean, end. Yeah, it's all. Uh, you know, we've got that eviction moratorium ending. Um, you know, if, if some more relief isn't passed, it's it's really going to hurt workers like that um, all over the country. So, so you know, if, if you're in if you're in a position where you can give, uh, we'd we'd highly uh, recommend it. And it, um, and it, and it and it goes without saying because a lot of times people say, "Well, I can't give a lot, so right. I'm not going to fool with it. I can't right. give five dollars. I can give five dollars. Right. I can't give a hundred. Mail them five dollars. If you can mail them five dollars, mail them. If we can get a hundred people mailing them five dollars, right. you 100, know, a hundred people mailing them two dollars. Yeah, you whatever know? you can give, I, I'm certainly going to go home today and and figure out what 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 we can give. You know, it's a shame that we, that they didn't have time to get this toy drive together. And I was sitting there looking at the calendar and thinking, is there any way we can help put that bring that together this quick? But I mean, with 13 days left, yeah. man, there's just yeah, there's not tough. enough time to organize something like that. That's really tough. That's really tough. Uh, so, you know, for the for the rest of the show, um, I thought we could talk about I thought we could talk about Bolivia. You know, the whole show last week, we just kind of let our interviewees talk. We I, I spliced up the interviews uh, to get some of the most relevant portions. Um, and if you want to hear the full interviews, make sure that you're supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Each of those interviews I had to cut down to about 10 minutes uh, and they were out of, you know, an hour long interviews. So, um, uh, you know, so if you want to hear those, support us on Patreon. If you can't support us on Patreon, no worries. They'll be out for everybody in, you know, three weeks or so. But David, you know, uh, what, 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 what were some of your takeaways from those interviews? Mm, you know, I, I would say the main, my biggest takeaway from the, all of the interviews that, that we were able to put together was the, the strength and power uh, and resilience of the workers in Bolivia. You know, that is, I just, uh, we talked to some of the, some of the, the most brilliant minds that's working in Bolivia. Uh, uh, Becker, uh, McNally, you know, I don't, I, how, I, I mean, and it's thanks to Taylor, of course, but right. through you and Taylor, y'all were able to pull off, in my opinion, probably one of the most, uh, one of the most uh, important shows that I've ever seen on uh, focusing on on those on those workers in Bolivia but the, I kept going back to the fact that you, you, we heard about the workers being murdered by 
by, you know, uh, and the government basically calling a moratorium on any uh, on any prosecution of the military and and allowing them free reign to go into the streets and start executing people, and it was uh, for one, it was really it, it it really it it was heartbreaking mm-hmm. to hear that happen but for two the fact that those people continue fighting right. and continue coming together and just uh i mean it's amazing it yeah. is is exactly opposite of what we have seen for the past 40 years in america with the you know with the destruction of of organized labor uh nationally and it's so difficult. I think in America, we've been, we, I mean, none of us have been executed in the right. last generation. Well, most of us hadn't. There's right. been some violence on picket lines and things like that, but nothing like that. Nothing, nothing like the military that we, mm-hmm. you know, we hadn't seen in a hundred years. But uh, morally, they, we've been uh, decimated. And it's so hard to get people to come together on, on these issues but uh, but they still believe in worker solidarity, and they're still right. out in their community fighting for each other. Yeah, well, you know the 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 single person embodiment of that is uh, Patrice Arce. Yeah, you know Patrice Arce. Uh, Thomas Becker talked about this in our interview. She was uh, beaten, sexually assaulted partially scalped, uh, dragged through the streets, told to denounce her party and the workers' movement. And she said, you can do whatever you want to me. I'm going to be fighting for the working people of Bolivia. And now she's in the government. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. A long-haired preachers come out every night. All right, folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. Uh, you know, we were kind of uh, gi- giving like a debrief on our Bolivia, uh, on the Bolivia interviews. Um, and, you know, David was talking about how his kind of biggest takeaway is, is, is the resiliency and the fight that the workers have in Bolivia. And I was and talking- solidarity. And solidarity. I mean, it's, it's, it is really amazing. Um, and, you know, the embodiment of that was Patrice Arce, who was, who was assaulted, who was partially scalped, dragged through the streets, and told to denounce her party, denounce working people. Um, and she said, you can do whatever you want to me. You can kill me. I'm not going to do that. And now she has been duly elected again into the parliament. And, uh, I mean, it's just really a story of, you know, she's like kind of the embodiment of, of the, the, the resiliency of, of, of working people and their advocates in Bolivia. Um, and, and, uh, and not only the, the resiliency, but the, you know, something else that comes to mind that we constantly talk about on this show is they haven't allowed, a lot of corporate, I wish I, uh, political parties to separate the working class mm-hmm. in Bolivia. And, you know, I fought you. Well, I don't say, I won't say I fought you, but I was dismissive early on of, of a Bolivia show. But, and then as we began doing the interviews, uh, it, co- it, it really spoke to me about, uh, we can learn a lot mm. from these workers, but, but one of the biggest things that I learned is the fact that 
in America, we've allowed these corporate entities, the Democrats and the Republicans, to they've done a wonderful job of dividing all of the workers across the United States and picking a camp and fighting these cultural fights that that, that literally affect almost no one that, that we know. But they keep everybody stoked, f- feared, hatred of each other instead of all the workers coming together. And that that's one, the, the biggest right. takeaway from Bolivia is the fact that all of these workers understand exactly what they need. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they are forming a worker party mm-hmm. surrounded around their demands and their needs instead right. of trying to, instead of constantly, I mean, how many times has the Republicans and the Democrats both promised us something in a campaign and never ever deliver on it mm-hmm. it's constant right and so that you know they haven't allowed they and we're it's, it's like we never learn from our mistakes we keep buying into mm-hmm. the same horse crap every four years well and two and how effective it's been you know even yeah. like, like it, it's it's really amazing the stuff that uh, uh, the Moss government, President Evo Morales, were able to do uh, while they were in power. And it's amazing that they were able to throw off a coup government backed by right-wing forces in Central and South America and backed by the United States. And, you know, they weren't... It wasn't just that they were able to vote out a fascist. It's that... A murdering... Murdering fascists. Right. But they, it wasn't even that they were able to vote. It's like they were so powerful that they forced the government to hold a vote. The government was trying their best not to hold a vote, but they went out on strike. They went out on general strikes. They blockaded roads. Um, they uh, they were very strategic and very powerful and very effective, and they were able to force a fascist coup government to hold elections and force them to concede when they lost. You know, that is that is real power. That is real power for working people. And, uh, you know, that it, it, it's power that has been used to lift up uh, poor people in Bolivia. They have cut their poverty rate in half, cut their extreme poverty rate in half. They have industrialized sections of Bolivia that have, you know, uh, they've they've uh, built roads. Uh, they brought electricity out to, to a lot of places in Bolivia. They didn't, didn't have it before. Under the Morales government, I mean, it's it's really really amazing, the things that they've been able to do and and the way that they were able to do it. You know, I I, I learned a lot, and and you know, one of the things that I that I kind of kick around, you know, of course, uh, Democrat uh, 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 labor unions in the United States are really kind of de facto basically supportive of the Democratic Party, and and you know, I don't know, one of the things that I've I've thought about is just like. You know, if, if if we're able to elect these two senator, two two Democrats in Georgia, and nothing, and still not, like they don't pass the Pro Act, and they don't do anything good for working people, they don't fight for us. You know, like I don't know, I I, I would probably be close to supporting like just uh, a <laughs> a total and complete stop on uh you know. Uh, using our packs for electoral processes until we can figure out what the hell is going on. You know, we we talked about it last night. I shot you a message, and I'm not going to bring up her name, but because she's a fellow uh, labor activist, and and I'm not going to put anybody down on the radio that, 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 you know, we all struggle. We all Mm -hmm. are fighting for workers, but 
you know, we talked about it last night and the fact that uh, the, this specific person came on a, a na- national show and was very slow to condemn a lot of the things that are happening on the Democratic side mm-hmm. because, and, it, and, and it's simply because they are hold, or we are beholden to right. them as opposed to they are being beholden to us. Mm-hmm. And we've got to turn that around to right. where not, not, just one party is beholden to us, but both parties right. are beholden to us. Yeah, you know, um, there there is a tweet that, uh, and, and so you know, we've talked about this: how unions cannot, we cannot, we it is illegal for unions to use dues money for yeah. political campaigns. Okay, like I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying here, but unions, union members can voluntarily donate, aside from dues, voluntarily donate to. Political action, just as anybody just else, as anybody anybody, else can. any other worker in the world. We in can donate. We can donate to PACs, and so lots of unions do have separate PACs, and they use those PACs that their members donate to to support campaigns. And and so there, the one one union, the laborers' union, uh, spent twenty five million dollars from their PACs and from their affiliated PACs in twenty twenty supporting Democrats. And that, mostly Democrats. Mostly Democrats. There was a few Republicans, of course, but mostly Democrats. And um, you know, somebody somebody mentioned that could have funded four hundred full time organizers, and you know, which would have been a better investment for those workers for for that union for the labor movement. You know, I, I'm. You're in a catch twenty two. Yeah, you're in a catch twenty two because you've got to you've got to be involved in the political process. Of course, you've got to let people you've got to let politicians know your demands and what is going to be good for your members. But how much how much resources should we really be devoting to electoral politics versus how much should we be devoting to organizing? And I'm I'm very, you know the labor council here in North Alabama we are we're organizing phone banking and postcard writing for the elections in Georgia in support of Warnock and Ossoff. Um, but man, if that specifically if, in support of the Pro Act, specifically that needs to right, be said. Right. Yeah, but I could c- care less. Who right. is running for office? We want the PRO Act passed. The Protecting the Right to Organize Act is very important for the labor movement. And if Warnock and Ossoff get in and the Democrats cannot pass the PRO Act in a Democratic House, in a Democratic Senate with a Democrat in the White House, you know, I'm I, I would, over. I would be very open to a full and complete stop on our PACs supporting Democrat until we can figure out what the hell is going on. Because, you know, we like we, we the, the buck has to stop somewhere. We've got to get something out of our support for politicians. And, you know, I understand politics is dirty and you've got it. You, you know, you've got to you, you win some and you lose some and you have to you have to be willing to play that game. But if they're not willing to play that game with us, we've got it. You know, the buck has to stop somewhere and if any republicans so, want to support the pro act right call us yeah i mean call t- us ted cruz we'll said get the Repu- you some money right ted cruz said that the republicans are the party of the working class prove it prove it prove it, prove it.